0: Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Vegas for NBA Summer League. Great visit with Pelicans Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations, David Griffin. We got into a lot of detail on the Anthony Davis trade, the drafting of Zion Williamson, the reshaping of the Pelicans organization, and David Griffin and I really talked a lot about the future of team building in the NBA, the way that player movement is impacted, the way teams have to approach building out plans, and how windows to win have shortened. Great visit with Griff. Now, the quality of the podcast is not what you may be used to sound-wise on the Woj Pod. My fault. But we tried to parse through. The audio, the best we can, our producer Andrew Hahn did a tremendous job, but my fault. But still, I think a very good pod, a great visit with David Griffin. I promise the next one will sound better. So here's my visit with New Orleans Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations, David Griffin. Griff, being back in this job... Uh, having a team again. What is it like to wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, having that, feeling that purpose?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a wonderful feeling, but during the two years that I was away from a team and and doing television, you you fall in love with the game of basketball again. You fall in love with the sport itself. When Every night you go to bed, it's that result that you're fixated on or the next coming result. You really become very myopic, and you lose sight of the human being you really want to be. I talked to Sam Presty about this a lot when I was doing television, and you know I think there should be a forced uh, sabbatical every seven to ten years for front office executives because it really does give you the ability to see things differently, to come at things with fresh eyes, and it's certainly been beneficial to me this time around. Griffin.
0: When you were evaluating this job and you knew walking into it the challenges that were immediate, beginning with the Anthony Davis trade, um, how you were going to handle that, the conversations you had with Gail Benson and, and the ownership group here about what they wanted in their next head of basketball operations, um, what what was the message you got when you walked in? Because you have met with a few ownership groups in your time away. And I think some of the others, I don't know that it went, listen, New York, Philadelphia, to name a couple. I don't know that it got very deep. I don't know that you think you had a sense that not right for me. And and this one, right away, there was something that told you, I, I, I think we're a fit.
1: Yeah, so I think during the time that I've been in the league uh, from from very early on in the time I was in the NBA, I really kind of looked at the people who were the best at running teams, and I felt like they had found their place and they had found their owner. And I've always believed that this is about that. I don't think you can be a truly special executive in our business if you don't have a relationship with ownership where you're all pulling in the same direction all the time. Ownership is the single biggest competitive advantage we have in the league. And if you can find your owner, the person you move in lockstep with, you have a chance to be successful. And I felt very, very quickly in the process with Mrs. Benson and her ownership team that these were the people I wanted to really try to dive into this with, that believed in me, that I believed in their vision. We were very much like-minded. And because of that, I went from thinking originally that I wasn't sure I was interested to very early in the process, first meeting with Mrs. Benson, I thought, boy, I, I really want to be here. And every day since, I've been more and more grateful that I, I am.
0: When, when you first got into the NBA, Griff, the view then might have been, if you have a chance to get a New York, a Philadelphia, and L.A., you just take that job over anything else, and it feels like marketplace is less a part of the decision in choosing to run a basketball organization. Is that how it felt for you in this, these last couple of years? Yeah,
1: for sure. And obviously winning a championship in a small market in Cleveland – I know it can be achieved. Now, Dan Gilbert and his team were willing to spend any amounts of money to achieve it. And no one's ever put more into the luxury tax than Dan did. We're the first team in history in Cleveland to go from being a max cap space team to a tax team in the same year. So Dan gave us some serious competitive advantages. But because we achieved it in a market like that, we saw what it meant to a market like that to win. And in particular, in a football first market. like Cleveland, where the Browns have always been king, you understand how much it means to kind of turn that narrative and make a city like New Orleans, a basketball city. So the challenge of that was exciting to us. It's... We're not, just in terms of the people that I am, my wife Meredith, we're not, the sex appeal of the big city isn't what it's about. It's about community. It's about the people you're with every day. And Mrs. Benson and her team very much looked at it the same way we did, which is we're caretakers of a sacred trust. And all we're really doing is taking forward the hopes and dreams of our community. And so New Orleans was the perfect place to do that.
0: What was sort of the emotional state of the organization when you took over the Anthony Davis Saga, I think, had, it takes a lot out of a place when that goes on. I think it, it's, um, it deflates an organization and it hangs over the thing every day. Uh, when you walked in the door, what was the temperature you took on, I guess the toll it had taken on everybody there?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. When we walked into Cleveland, LeBron had just left. I got there in September of 10, LeBron had left in July of 10, and it felt like you were jumping into a burning building. And, it was one of those situations for us where we had sort of the ultimate green light to do what we needed to do. And it was, if we didn't succeed, it was all going to be someone else's fault. Um, and in this particular case, when we walked in the door, I felt very much like there were a lot of really good people there. And it just hadn't, for whatever reason, all come together. And I think Mrs. Benson by her own admission, had just gotten the opportunity to really invest in the process. So as soon as she did have that opportunity and brought us in, she was 100% committed to we need to be successful, and she's given us the bandwidth to do that. I think a lot of the people that were there felt previously like maybe they didn't have that prior to Mrs. Benson assuming control. Um, so I, I think they were all optimistic once I, I came on board. But what's happened is every day has been another bigger statement about ownership's commitment to winning and so we've been able to stack successes on themselves to this point so hopefully that pays off in wins and losses because if it doesn't it doesn't mean much
0: your stated mission initially was to try to convince anthony davis to give new orleans another chance let's shelve the trade request let's come to training camp uh let's try to give me an off season to improve the team did it feel realistic to you or did it feel like I've got to do that. I've got to exhaust that avenue before I go to the next. But was there ever a time you thought that you'd be able to sell that to him, that he was open-minded to it? Yeah,
1: I mean, I from the very beginning, I assumed he would be open-minded to it. My relationship with Rich Paul was very strong, having won a championship together. I felt like he would be open-minded to the notion that we could build a winner around him. And I think he did get comfortable with the idea that that could happen. I think ultimately with Anthony, it was just very clear he was not all in on us as as a team and all in on us as a community anymore. And I think he had just gotten to the point where so much had happened that it was just time for him to get a fresh start. And I think we felt the same way, quite frankly, towards the very end of our conversations. We almost sort of took the decision out of his hands in some way because – we can be a seller for quite a while and recruit you, but eventually we become a buyer, and we want to see somebody who's about us, and it was very clear that Anthony, his time had passed with us where he was going to feel that way, so I think we made a mutual decision that it was time to move on, and I'm, I'm comfortable with it, and I, I really respect Anthony for being willing to look me in the eye and have those conversations. He asked great questions. He asked what I would call buying questions, um, so he was really sincere about giving it a chance, and I appreciate that.
0: I want to get back to the night of the draft lottery in a minute, but once you had won the draft lottery and you knew Zion was coming, was there another part of you that thought, I do not want to contaminate, I can't think of maybe a better word, I don't want to contaminate the beginning of his experience here with this saga hanging over the whole thing. Was that, did that become part of your thinking?
1: Part of, sure, I think part of it is when you win the lottery and you have a player that Is viewed as being generational in the way that Zion was, which is a really unfair comment, by the way. He's, he's an 18 year old kid who's gonna try to be the best basketball player he can be, but when you, when you draft a kid like that and you draft somebody that you really believe in, what you don't wanna do to your, to your point is you don't wanna bring them into a culture and an environment where people are halfway in. You know, he needed to walk into an environment where everybody was pulling in the same direction. Everybody wanted to be part of being with Pelicans basketball. They wanted to be in New Orleans. They want to be winning in New Orleans. And when he comes into that environment, it gives you a much better chance to sort of put your arms around him and say this is what it means to win in the NBA. So – Yes, that that issue being settled was something of a concern. But more than anything else, the biggest concern was the things that we've done in free agency, building around Drew Holiday with J.J. Redick and now Derek Favors, getting the kind of quality veterans that can teach Zion and our other young draft picks, Jackson Hayes and McKeel Alexander-Walker, what it means to be a pro. And we're excited about all three of those kids.
0: Hey, Griff, when you started... Even before, I'm sure, even when you were evaluating the job and imagining what you would do, and you I'm sure you laid out a plan. You, you did lay out a plan in your meetings and when you interviewed for the job. You've got a blueprint in your mind of what an Anthony Davis trade would look like based on history, based on the leverage of the moment with the Lakers. How did you piece together in your mind what this is supposed to look like for a player of his caliber? And then, of course, it's always about timing and circumstance, too,
1: yeah so we were really fortunate that rich paul representing lebron james and the lakers need to put another star with lebron sort of dovetailed with the fact that anthony picked the time he had picked to to want to move on and there was really only one destination where they were confident he would sign so we knew that if If he was going to get dealt to a place that didn't have that level of confidence, the precedence that we would be looking at could potentially be more like the Kawhi Leonard deal when he went to Toronto or more like the Oklahoma City deal when he went from Indiana to Oklahoma City. That would have been our reality. But because we were in a situation where he was willing to re-sign in L.A., we had our sights set a little higher and we were fortunate that it all came together in the way that it did that there was enough leverage from other teams to really kind of continue down that path. Uh, Rob Palinka was incredibly, uh, forthright throughout the process and I think dealt with us in a very fair way. So we're grateful with the way it came about.
0: I think in the perfect world in Boston, if, if, you know, hypothetically, if Kyrie Irving was coming back and Anthony would have been part of their future, there might have been a whole different uh, bidding scenario. Um, did the market? I'm gonna say the again. You got out of really couldn't have gotten much more from the Lakers than you did. But did it become clearer once Boston? Boston was maybe not in the position to go as far in as they might have been if if they thought they were bringing in Anthony Davis to keep Kyrie Irving. Did that change how negotiations looked?
1: Yeah, certainly, and I, I think you see what it means to make a deal with a star player when you don't have to trade them, like Oklahoma City was with Paul George, that trade that the Clippers made, they gave up far more for Paul George than what they would have given up for just Paul George. They gave up what they give up to have Kawhi and Paul George. And no question. And so that's what that trade represents. So Sam Presti did a marvelous job of leveraging that, but he wasn't in a situation where he had to trade the player. In our situation, we were in a situation where it was clear that Anthony was ready to move on. And it wasn't clear that he was willing to stay anywhere other than L.A. So I think that probably played into Boston's thinking more than, the Kyrie aspect of it because Boston intended to stay and doesn't tend to stay elite. They wanted to compete at the highest level. I think the risk factor of him not staying put the trade conversations more in the space of those other deals we talked about.
0: Hey, Griff, the, is what happened in LA with both LA teams and the price that each paid uh, to get uh, one to get Anthony Davis and then the other to get Paul George and to secure Kawhi Leonard. Is that a reflection of very unique circumstances with unique players, spoke to the desperation of those teams to get those deals done, or does it reflect the way the NBA may start looking where windows seem to be shorter and you're going to see people maybe make more aggressive all-in deals? Like, Can you separate those two out from each other?
1: Yeah, so I I think what you saw there is... Two teams that had max cap space and had planned to have max cap space. And in the case of the Clippers, max cap space for two max players. I think they had a plan. And this was their window. They had planned to get to this point. And if you look at the free agent names that are coming down the pike if you had not struck now and you were a team that had played for max cap space for this particular year it was going to be very very difficult to figure out how to connect the dots to a championship caliber team so it was a unique set of circumstances in terms of timing the marketplace the caliber of players that were in it and the fact that these teams had sacrificed as much of their previous season as they had to get to that point. Certainly in the case of the Lakers, that's true. So I, I think it was a really unique kind of confluence of events. But what I think we take from it and people I were talking about it before and not necessarily, I think, understanding exactly what it means you're going to have to be prepared to pivot pretty quickly in the NBA now. Winning isn't enough. Kawhi Leonard just won a championship with a team that has a magnificent culture in a phenomenal market, and that wasn't enough. There was something else he wanted. So you're going to need to be in a position as a franchise to pivot quickly, and I think all of that brings me to the notion that the Supermax contracts, and you and I were talking about this earlier, the Supermax contracts that these guys sign – They almost don't enable you to pivot quickly because those are big numbers. And it's it's sort of like trying to to turn the Titanic. You know, you don't do it on rails. And with those numbers that big, it becomes daunting.
0: Did the league misjudge? I, I think the sense when the Supermax became part of the CBA was that it was going to limit player movement, that the money was so great, the guaranteed money was so great that players would be very reluctant to pass it up. And in fact, just the opposite is where guys have wanted even shorter deals and they have passed up that supermax. More have passed up the supermax than have accepted it. I, this isn't how I don't think the owners thought this would go.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. And, and again, I, I think one of the reasons for that is that in most cases, the supermax players that have been moving are also signature shoe guys. They have their own shoe, they have their own brand, they have their own line. They're making enough money that they can take risk players didn't used to take. LeBron's been on a series of one-year deals with Cleveland. When he signed the four-year deal in L.A., he hadn't signed a max deal like that since his time in Miami. So he had an amount of leverage because he was willing to forego that money because he was already making so much money off the court. So with some of these guys, that comes into play as well. They're willing to take a chance on a year-to-year deal because they can't. Can. So that's one thing that I think happens. The other thing that I think has happened along the way is because there's a fixed date in which you can exercise a, a max deal, 18 months before that, all of the media is talking about so-and-so is not going to stay there. And we know he wants to leave. He wants to leave. And so there becomes so much noise around that player. Then in the absence of this fixed timeline would never happen. So it's a fascinating thing.
0: You you said it that the pressure on organizations now to pivot and to let's say you don't win the lottery, let's say you get the fifth or sixth pick, wherever you are, is how you would have approached the rebuild or the reshaping of this organization. Would you have been out in free agency if if you didn't have Zion or maybe the number two pick? Maybe you would have looked at you would have valued the number two pick that way too. There was great interest in Drew Holiday. I mean, there wasn't a contender in the league who I don't think called you to try to get a Drew and I think made just pretty good offers. If you don't get one or two or one, are, are you out in free agency with J.J. Redick? Are you bringing in Derek Favors? Would, would it be that dramatic of a difference?
1: I don't think it would be that dramatic of a difference in terms of what we would have tried to achieve. It probably would have been a pretty dramatic difference in terms of our ability to get it done. I, I think the winning the lottery was one of the first of many sort of loud, noisy statements that this is not the Pelicans you once knew. Uh, Mrs. Benson's investment in staffing with Trajan Langdon and Swin Cash and myself and Aaron Nelson and what we're doing to the practice facility were, were all things that stacked on top of that lottery news. That made it so that free agents looked at our situation differently than they would have in the absence of winning the lottery, maybe it didn't really change our thought process. it just maybe accelerated the timeline.:
0: night in the draft lottery, you and I are standing by the, the TV podium we have, and you, you looked me in the eye and you said, we're going to win this. we're going to win this tonight." And I said, "Well, okay I guess. <laughs> you know but we, but we had to know based on the leveling of the odds, None of us should have been surprised at the way it all fell out. That's what this was designed to do, which was to discourage tanking. And and that's what happened. But that night, you said it to me before we went out. Sometimes people are talking and talk, but you really, looking back, I really felt you believed it. Because like, there was a momentum to what was going on there. And... There was a momentum to what was going on with your organization and, and you, you convinced me that it might happen when the numbers said, well, probably not, but, but it did.
1: Yeah. You know, it was funny from the day I took over, I told Alvin Gentry, we're going to win the lottery. And that came from a belief in something that Jeff Cohen, one of the owners in Cleveland when I was there, who's now no longer with Dan's group, Jeff Cohen, won three lotteries in four years uh, representing the team in the back room. And before every one of them, he would say, if you can see it, you can believe it. You just have to see it. And so we really very intently visualized winning and we started to connect to that energy and that feeling. So, Alvin and I both walked in there that day, we were on fire with belief that this was going to happen, and it really was something from a, I suppose speaking it into existence thing, but it was genuinely, and right now I can, I get goosebumps thinking about this, you can really change your vision of yourself and your circumstance simply by believing in it, and that's what happened. We were really fortunate, obviously. It's dumb luck, but to some degree, you you have to generate the energy that allows for that.
0: Uh, That night after the draft lottery, you meet privately with Zion Williamson, with his family. What was that conversation like that night?
1: Yeah, it was really a special moment, actually. Um, Alvin and I got to meet with him, uh, 9.30 that night, the league had arranged that whoever won the lottery spent time with them. And we were with Zion by himself for about 20 minutes. And we were so taken by him as a kid, I asked him if his parents were there. And he said they were, and we had them come down uh, to the room we were in. And we spent about an hour and a half together that night uh, as a as a group. And watching Alvin Gentry with, with Zion's stepdad, Lee, Lee Anderson, talk about old south carolina basketball players that only alvin would have known um he's really the only human being that could have been the head coach of our team at that moment and i i sort of removed myself from it watching zion and his stepfather and alvin talk about basketball and had just an overwhelming sense of gratitude that this human being was going to join our family the player himself He's going to grow and evolve over time, and hopefully he turns out to be a very, very good player. You hope he's a great player someday. But he's dedicated to his own greatness, and watching them interact with each other and understanding how he was raised to view himself as just a part of a team was really a special moment.
0: Your responsibility now, you you started it already here, you've done it all along, to try to, now it's your, like, the season tickets sales are great, and you're not giving back one of those for, for being able to draft Zion Williamson. But in this day and age, when there's a phenomenon, and he is a phenomenon, and he's been that, unlike anything we've seen in college basketball in however long, college basketball doesn't create that anymore. And, and he created that with, with at Duke. But to start, you know what comes with this. You've been around it with LeBron on a different level where every day, every movement, summer league, He banged his knee. I mean, there are a million guys suddenly banging their knee and going to sit. But with him, it is something much bigger. And every single day, that's what the coverage will be like. What is your responsibility as an organization? He is still a teenager. I I think in these situations, you want to alleviate as much pressure. There's enough from the outside. Like, as an organization now, top to bottom, what's the responsibility to help him manage all that's coming for him at this age.
1: Well, I think for starters it's a hold him accountable in the same way you would any other teammate. You know, he's 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 going to be a part of the team and he's going to be treated as such. I I don't think we look at this as this is about Zion because Zion doesn't look at it that way. Zion recognizes this is about the Pelicans, and he just wants to be as accretive to the group as he can. He's he's just a native winner, and so it won't be it won't be about him, and it won't be about his star. It'll be about what we can achieve together because that's what he thinks all the time. So what we have to do is do a a much better job as an organization, certainly than we did in Cleveland, anyway. Of of sort of isolating the outside noise and and build our f- family in such a way that we can really be open with one another and very direct with one another about what expectations are because that's how his family has raised Zion and I, I feel like it's going to be a very natural fit but certainly a lot of the things we learned along the way with LeBron and Kevin Love and Kyrie and all of the nonsense that came around having a team of that magnitude that will help us as we move forward for sure.
0: That environment in Cleveland and, and wanting to have something, listen, it was an environment I think you, I don't know if you'd agree with this, where it seemed like at times people were always getting pitted against other people. Blame was, you know, there was everyone passing blame or grabbing for credit, and and that was part of the the, the struggle there. Was it unavoidable in Cleveland? Was it set up? Was there no way to get around it? Or do you look back and said? Boy, I wish we could have done that and, and I learned this and like how do you look back at it and, and evaluate where you won a championship. So in the end it works. Like in the end it worked because you won. But was there a smoother road to it?
1: We won a championship and it wasn't terribly enjoyable to go through the process heading up into heading up to that because there were so many things that mattered more than the we of our team. Culturally, we were individuals and we were trying to gel individuals rather than raising a family from the beginning. And it's because when LeBron's on a series of one year deals, you have to view what you're doing is win that championship. It's, you view it more as a sprint than you do the holistic approach that you can take when you start from the beginning. So in New Orleans, we've been able to start from the beginning and to, to sort of grow this in a mindful, sustainable way. When LeBron lands on Cleveland again and the expectation is you better win a championship now, the game changed so radically that it wasn't really possible to do a lot of the things you would have liked to have done because you didn't learn how to win together. It was, okay, none of these kids have ever won, but now we have to win a championship. It just wasn't organic. It wasn't real. What what it was was a way to to apply the trade of team building. We feel like we did an exceptional job of finding fit, so that will help us moving forward. But that experience is so unlike anything I ever hope to have again from a team building standpoint because it wasn't organic in any way, shape, or form. It was just zero to a hundred, and you better win. Right.
0: Right, and and the 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 model, the way in which you brought in players, that is not anything you would probably ever be able to do before. It was trade a couple picks to create space, of trying like like the Vergeau deal, right? Mm-hmm. Things because you had an owner that was willing to go deep in luxury tax, you could do things that almost you weren't going to replicate anywhere else. You you didn't go in in your interview and sit in New Orleans and say, "Hey, like I won a championship." That's the model for how to do it. No, your model was going to be completely different, but. But I guess you'd rather learn the lessons of victory than in defeat. Yeah, no question. You learn them in victory,
1: right? Yeah, no question. And, and again, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a process that you would ever hope to replicate because the circumstances couldn't ever exist again in the way they did. Again, LeBron's on one year deals. He's come from a championship environment. Our players had to that point been in the lottery several years in a row and we had not organically learned to play for each other. Golden State, had a nucleus together in Clay, Steph, and Draymond that went through battles together. They lost together. They started to really bond in losing together. And then they were able to figure out how to win together. And they cherished that journey a little bit differently than our guys did. Our guys were told, you've never been good enough. Here's LeBron. Be good enough now. That's what the outside world said to them. That's a horrific way to raise young players in the end. NBA, and there's not a lot you can do about it when someone of the magnitude of LeBron is there, because if you took him off of any team, and this was proven when he went to the Lakers, you take him off any team that goes to the finals, you put him on the next one, the expectation is if he doesn't go to the finals, it was a failure, and it's not going to be his failure, it'll be the failure of the franchise, and so it was a difficult thing to go through for sure.
0: You imagine your whole career, what it's going to be like to win a championship, what it's going to feel like, what, is it what you imagined it would be? Was it elation or was it relief?
1: No, and I think that's probably the most important thing that, that we learned in the process is you view, you know, it was the 25th year, I believe, 24th year at that time that we had been in the NBA and you sort of view championships as a destination. You know, if we could just achieve this, we will have, we will have reached the pinnacle. And the reality is, Championships are not a destination. They're a state of mind. It's, a, it's building a championship organization. And I think there are a lot of organizations that are incredibly well run that have not been fortunate enough to win a title. The teams that won the title weren't better run. They just had a better set of circumstances from which to ply their craft. And I think when you look at the teams that are doing a really good job in our league, and there's more and more of them all the time, It's a much more competitive environment from a front office standpoint. We're all learning from each other, but... Sure, if you could choose win a championship, that's great. But what you want to learn while you're building towards a championship is how to create that culture and that environment that feeds itself in a sustainable way, like San Antonio has, like the New England Patriots have, like the New Orleans Saints have. You you wanna be a culture like that. And championships and I'm I feel really blessed to have gotten to learn this, they're not a destination. They're just sort of the residue of being successful.
0: You know that term, the, the term of culture and how you implement it. It always, in the end, feels like it comes from who your best player is. Golden State's culture was Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. San Antonio's culture was was Tim Duncan and Manu and Tony Parker. Now that doesn't mean the leadership there didn't provide everything they needed, and, and they did. But in the end, in New Orleans, if it, it's it's. Zion Williamson and, and, and the players you drafted and you bring in a J.J. Reddick who you know, like, there's not a team in the league who doesn't want J.J. Reddick with their group. Um, like, in the end, is, is are the players going to dictate it in the end? Is that, is that what oh,
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, I think in our circumstance, you know, Drew Holiday is going to dictate a, a great deal of it. Um, you know, when we brought Steve Nash back to Phoenix and gave him a sixty six million dollar deal at the time, everybody said we were crazy, and they would never live up to that number, etc and he ended up being two time mVP because the team was built to really maximize all of his gifts. We we put the right pieces around him. Systematically, the right pieces were around him. We feel like Drew Holiday can take a jump similar to that if the right pieces are around him. And culturally, we're going to be very reflective of who Drew is. Drew is all about winning. He's a two-way player that will sacrifice whatever it takes to be successful. As a human being, he's about as good as I've ever been with in the league. I, I love his family. Lauren's a special, special person herself. Y- you really feel like you're going to want to grow with these people over time and that our family and his family are, are are going to blend into one. And And we hope that because of the presence of a Drew Holiday, because of the presence of a J.J. Reddick and a Derek Favors, Twan Moore, really cal- high-caliber veteran human beings, That then the young kids that we're sprinkling in will learn how to do this the right way. And a la the Spurs, when they had those three guys teaching the next generation what it means to play Spurs basketball, we, we hope that those veteran pros will help our young kids learn what it means to be professionals and hopefully we'll arrive at what it means to be a Pelican, and that'll be a successful situation.
0: I was talking to Mike Conley about this earlier this morning about whether players of this generation will ever experience what he and Marcus all did together for so long in Memphis. Neither one of them, even when things started getting sideways around them, they they remained committed to wanting to figure it out there. We want to win here. We want to win in this place. We want to win together. That is not how it goes anymore in this league. And um, guys are trading out. I mean, they're just trading each other out. Um, after very short windows, Paul George was two seasons and, and was out again and is going to go play with Kawhi with the Clippers. Um, is that going to be the hardest thing? Cause, and it's not, this is relative to our culture. This is relative to our society. Like it is like we put off climate change. We put off all these things to have what we want in the now, in, in this moment. And, um, is that maybe the biggest obstacle for running an organization now is to, Because all that outside stuff becomes part of your, you know, like, becomes part of your group. You can't, you've learned that in Cleveland. You can say, we're going to shut out the noise. You're not, you're not, right? And so, is that the fight for every organization now to be able to sustain anything anymore?
1: Yeah, I I think so. And again, we, we talked about it relative to Kawhi leaving a place he won a championship in a great city. Paul George is leaving a phenomenal culture and apparently had asked to, to be traded. He's leaving a situation where they had gone all in on winning ownership had put as much money into the process as they could. And it still wasn't enough. And I love what you said about this. Our players are part of the same overarching culture. We all are right as a society right now, there's a lot more me orientation. There's a lot more instant gratification and our players are going to be no different. So, my wife and I never had kids and we really would have liked to have had kids but because we haven't, I can't quite put this in terms of being a parent but I think it's what all parents deal with, right? You're, you're trying to grow something that means something more than what everyone else would do right? If everyone else jumped off a bridge would you do it too, right? I remember our, my parents saying that to me Well, now what we've created in in the league is a situation where superstars just want to go play together and they're watching the model of those guys playing together and they think that's the way to win. And Mike Conley and Marc Gasol were the two guys who were saying, no, 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 no. We're going to do this here because we believe in one another. To some degree, I think that's what Golden State did, winning before KD got there, right? They won 73 games without the guy. They won a championship without the guy because they had a nucleus and a substantive, there's there, there. It matters if you're a warrior. That's what we hope to create in New Orleans. And if we get to the point where people decide they would be happier expressing their greatness elsewhere... Then it is, and, and we can't hold resentment for that. All we can do is create the best possible environment we can and give ourselves better odds at creating the type of energy that people want to stay part of.
0: Do, do you think there's anything more to read into the fact that there was a two, probably, you know, however we want to rate them, uh, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, two of the best three players in the world, the best two, however we want to do it. Decided we don't want to be part of a three. We want to be part of a two. We don't want a super team. Kevin didn't want to remain with one. Kawhi, in the end, didn't want to go build one. And I had an executive who was in the middle of all this, chasing all these guys um, a few weeks ago say to me, I think we've seen the end, that Duran is showing us the end of the super team because the third guy in these things, that, that nobody wants to be the third guy anymore and that there's diminished, there's just a diminished status, diminished numbers, all of it. And that we're gonna, we're gonna start seeing this head back to the twos. Do you, was this just dumb luck of two individual decisions? Or do you think, like, maybe nobody wants to be the third guy anymore. The, 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 the A plus guys don't want to do that.
1: I think to some degree that's true, but I, I also think it's, you know, when the super team was put together in Miami, Dwayne Wade was clearly an A-plus guy, and it was his team. LeBron was clearly an A-plus guy. Chris Bosh was not a guy that was viewed as carrying a franchise by himself. He was the guy who was going to learn how to win in Miami. So everybody looked at that as that made sense it made sense to grow the next champion as a third guy. And I think what you're seeing is you can't take three of the top five players in the world and stick them together and let them like that. But you might be able to put two of the top five players in the world in 10th or 15th on that team, right? So... I I think that's possible, but I don't think anybody who's a signature shoe guy wants to be part of you know being viewed as the third wheel. I, I think it's just a matter of how you build your team. You know, Toronto won a championship. Siakam was probably as good throughout that whole period of time as anybody was. So if Siakam changes hands, is he part of building a, a, a super team? Like this, all becomes about media perception, and it all becomes that perception's greater than reality. Guys that impact winning and losing games and give you a chance to be great are more important than guys with name recognition. So if the guys with name recognition don't want to join forces anymore, I don't care. I just need to build a team in such a way that greatness can show itself and it's attracted to the energy we create.
0: For, for everybody, maybe especially in the Western Conference, for everybody building a team, when the news came late the other night that the Lakers weren't going to have three, they were going to have two, and the Clippers were going to have two. I sensed the collective sigh of relief around the league. Not that anybody was rooting for the Clippers, but nobody wanted to deal with what that reality was going to make. maybe make the league look like. Is that fair to say Like there was a little bit of a sigh of, okay, nobody wanted to deal with those three on one team, Kawhi, LeBron, Anthony Davis?
1: Yeah, so initially when the, when the news came out and we saw that uh, Kawhi had chosen the Clippers there was literally a momentary sigh of relief in New Orleans because we hold the Laker picks moving forward and though that trio together would have been a lot scarier in terms of what those picks may or may not be worth at least in the short term they would have been scarier and then almost instantaneously the news that Paul George was going there as well happened and I think there was a reality of, boy, it's an arms race in L.A. And we had entered free agency saying, look, if we land the plane on everything we want to do, there's teams that are better than us. There's teams that are more prepared to win. But he, who is clearly better than us? And the Clippers answered that question for us pretty quickly.
0: Griff, <laughs> um, this, uh, this was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. great to uh, get back visiting with you. This time, running the Pelicans. Uh We'll uh, we'll see you here the rest of the Summer League, and and I know training camp's coming sooner than we think.
1: Thank you, Walsh. Had a great time. Thanks,
0: Greg.